Welcome to Focus, the productivity podcast about more than just cranking widgets. I'm David Sparks. Mike Schmitz couldn't be here this week, but I am joined with my friend Mark Metzger. Welcome to Focus, Mark. Thanks, David. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Mark, I was so happy that you came on the show. Uh, lately, we've had too many authors on the show. I wanted to get somebody who's out there in the weeds trying to stay focused and get work done. And you were on the top of my list for this. Mark and I have been friends uh, over a decade now, I would think. God, it might even be two. <laughs> yeah, Mark is a Mark, yeah, Mark is a business lawyer in Chicago who's very connected to the ideas of productivity and focus. In addition to running a successful practice, he also is a is a coach. He helps other lawyers work through these problems. And we're going to be talking about that today. But if you're not a lawyer, don't turn the dial. It's it, the stuff Mark has to talk about really applies to anybody. And um, I'm just really looking forward to sitting down with you and, and kind of working through some of this, Mark. Well, I'm I'm really excited to, to talk about this too. And I'm my resonating in my head is I mean, literally this morning I finished listening to uh, you and Mike's most recent episode talking about journaling, and I I think that fits beautifully into a lot of this stuff. And uh, you know, there's so much to explore. I'm excited for the discussion. I guess let's just pick up from last week. Do you journal? You know, I do on and off. I'm I'm the ultimate fits and starts guy on that. Sure. And I so desperately want to have a regular journaling habit. And I, I live the journey that you and Mike described. You know, I, I did the fancy pen and paper route because I thought that would be the ticket. And I thought day one would be the ticket. And, and you know, it just seems like no matter what tool I choose or what approach I choose, eventually life lifes me. And before I know it, I look up and it's been three months since I did a journal entry. Yeah, it, it is really easy to fall off that wagon. I am um, just, it's funny because we were recording this at 8 a.m. And I got up today at six and I had plenty of time to journal between then and now, but you know, life happened and I didn't. And I was just thinking as we sat, as I got on the call today, I was like, oh, I didn't journal yet. I'm, and like, if I don't do it immediately after we get done recording today, like if we get to noon, I'm in serious trouble in terms of the journal habit for today. Well, let me, let me ask you a question on behalf of all your listeners, Dave, because we know that, that you are a, a big fan of meditation and as am I. Yeah. And you, I suspect, know, as as I and other meditators have discovered, on days that, for whatever reason, life has lifed you and it's getting away from you and you postpone the sit, you notice that later in the day that you haven't done it. The, the fact yeah. that you haven't recharged that battery becomes noticeable. Yeah, totally. Do you notice that with your journaling? If you haven't journaled, do you feel the pull that you know there, there's something unfinished and unsatisfied that I need to get back to? No. No, I don't. I, I find uh, the the meditation takes precedence. Uh, but if I don't journal, I feel like I miss out on some insight that could be helpful mm -hmm. for me. Um, but the meditation, it is like that. I think did you ever see that show Lost? You remember that show sure. Lost? And sure. they had they had the computer where the guy had to go and type in like six numbers every eight hours mm -hmm. the world ended. Yep. That's kind of like me in the meditation practice. I got to punch <laughs> in the numbers, man, every day. Uh, but, but, you know, and, and it is funny. And this is kind of as we did our prep call, I think this is going to be a theme today. It's it's the times when you need it the most, when you find excuses not to do it. Um, uh, I, I remember distinctly a few years ago, we had a, one of my close relatives got got really sick and was in, uh, in intensive care. And uh, I stopped meditating because I spent all my time driving to the hospital, sitting by her side. 
And then after like four or five days, I was frazzled and I didn't, I'm like, oh, you know what it is? And so I literally sat in the hospital and meditated for like an hour next to her. And mm-hmm. I think they thought I was praying or something. I don't know what happened, but they, they left me alone and like it really helped center me. Whereas journaling doesn't have that, that much of a negative effect on me, but when I do it, I get a positive effect from it. Well, you know, there is that, but I, I'm, I'm thinking back to that Russell Simmons quote that makes me laugh, um, where apparently some young rapper was discussing meditation with Russell Simmons. And he says, man, I don't have time to sit still for 20 minutes. And Russell's response was, if you don't have 20 minutes, then you need like two hours. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it really is a, um, you know, Chris Bailey, who was on the show a month or two ago, uh, talks about it in terms of a productivity hack. Like it, it actually is a net gain, you know, doing meditation for 20 minutes means that, the next six hours are going to be more productive. You're, you're actually getting time. You're not only getting the 20 minutes back, you're probably getting more overall. Oh, I completely agree. And that's definitely my experience. Now, some people will be listening to this saying, Oh, you crazy hippies, but Mark is in Chicago, you know, home of sausage and steak. And that's right. I'm a doughy Midwesterner for crying out loud. Yeah. But it, it just, I really do think it works, but the trouble is it doesn't work the first day. And I think that gets people. Well, you know, this isn't even on the outline, Mark, but when did you start meditating? I didn't know you were a meditator. Um, You know, I'm not sure I could pin down the exact day. I can tell you how I got there, which was I um, read Dan Harris's book, 10% Happier. Yeah. And I was actually hooked on the book from the first line of the introduction, which uh, your editor may need to bleep this, but this is the actual um, line from the introduction that Dan Harris wrote. It says, I, I wanted to call this book, the voice in my head is an, but the publisher wouldn't let me. (laughs) (laughs) So the, the the degree of irreverence that he showed in that kind of was attractive to me from the get go. But the book, if you're not familiar with it, tells the story of Dan Harris, the ABC journalist who famously had a panic attack on air during good morning America. Um, and he quickly, cause he was like, his, his, air supply was getting choked off. You know, the anxiety had gotten to that level. Yeah. And he inside of two minutes threw it back to Charlie Gibson, who recognized it was a problem, went to commercial. And then they all descended on the news desk to try to help Dan and get him, you know, back into a, a calm state. Um, but it, the book tells the story of how he came to meditation as a solution to a combination of anxiety and PTSD. That, yeah. that he was suffering from, yeah, uh, that he had self-medicated for a number of years with um, illegal substances, and that, of course, amplified all the problems. Yeah, and and how he eventually came to to meditation, but he got there the same way you just talked about it with with, with me and and for the listeners, which is to you know ridicule a little bit this idea of oh come on, I mean how could that possibly help? That's a bunch of hippie woo woo nonsense. Um, and as I read the book, it just resonated for me because. Every time he would have an objection, the same objection was already in my head, and then he would overcome the objection. Yeah. So I got to the end of the book, and I thought, I should try this. And it worked, like, every step of the way. So did you get a coach, or did you just sit down? How did you get started? I started with the Headspace app, and uh, little Andy Puttycomb, the uh, um, British-accented monk, yeah, doing guided meditations. And when Dan's company finally put out their own Applica app uh, on the, on the iPhone, um, the 10% happier app. I've been using that one ever since. Uh, and it's just made a remarkable difference for me. Now, do you 
do you like sit on the ground? Do you sit on a chair? I mean, what, what's your meditation position? Yes. I, I, I will do it any place, any time, yeah. in any condition, uh, in any position. It, for me, it's about the practice, not about the procedure. Yeah, we talked about it in the Max Varkey Labs, and um, one of the listeners or, or members was saying, well, what about like when I get stressed out in an airport? And I'm like, you could do it in an airport. Just sit you bet. in your chair and just go to your happy place. You know, I mean, it, it's not, this is not like, you don't have to be wearing crimson robes and kneeling on a, you know, special Zafu pillow. You know, you can do it anywhere. In fact, I, I also um, like to do what the, what the Buddhists call walking meditation. You know, and uh, I do it with my dog walks sometimes, and mm-hmm. the dog doesn't doesn't like me to meditate. She would rather I throw <laughs> the ball, but the uh, but it just you know it just depends on you know where I'm at and and what I need. But I, I find it a, a very um, it, it's a very easy way to recharge. In fact, I often think because I've never been someone that got hung up on these dis- digital distractions. You know, I don't spend hours on Instagram or Facebook or whatever. And my meditation practice started in 92 and I feel like way before me. Yeah. But I feel like that, that life of meditation gave me armor against the age of digital distraction. I think that that's uh, one of the key, I didn't realize it at the beginning, but as we've been doing the show and I've been talking to people, the more I think about the more I think, you know, maybe, you know, I, I talk about it in a way, say, look, this stuff just doesn't bother me. Like when people tell me they have to delete apps from their phones and stuff, that's never been a problem. I just don't look at the app, you know, if I don't need it. But uh, I think the meditation probably played a role in that. I don't know how nerdy you want to get on meditation, but, you know, there's two major flavors of it. There's there's insight meditation and there's meta. And one of the things I've learned from the 10% Happier app is, and, and this these are my words, not any actually learned person's description. The the way it lands for me is when you do the the meta meditation, for me, it feels like I'm enlarging the battery or or I guess maybe the, the better electronic term is capacitor. I'm enlarging the capacitor that allows me to absorb the irritations of daily life. And the more I do that, the more aggravation I can endure in a day without it really bothering me. And at some point, I exceed my capacity. And like any other person, I get irritated sure. and annoyed and maybe even lash out. Yeah. But the combination of doing insight meditation and periodically mixing in some meta meditation seems to be providing, and, and there's papers I read on this that seem to imply that this is correct, seem to enlarge my capacity for handling the nonsense that life presents. Yeah. It doesn't make us perfect. It just makes us a little better. <laughs> Do you do always narrated meditation or do you do meditation sessions with, with silence? I've done both. Yeah. Uh, and w- which one I choose sometimes is a function of, uh, in the 10% happier app, what they often have are courses that I find to be really interesting. Will there be what some people would call a Dharma talk at the beginning to help you understand or think about some issue, challenge, or problem? Uh, and then there'll be a, a guided meditation to help reinforce that lesson. So I always... When I'm in one of those courses, I'll always do the guided meditations to go with it because it helps learn the, the technique or the skill that's being taught. Yeah. Some in some cases, the monkey brain is just all over the place. And for me, the guided meditation is that that thing that brings me back because I just so rapidly get distracted by the train of distraction that shows up. Yeah. Um, that that I find myself often never never land before I know it. And the just periodic 
um, break them the silence where somebody says, and if your mind has wandered, bring it back to your breath and begin again. You know, so, so when I know that that I'm distractible, I'll do the, the the guided meditation for sure. And when I feel like I'm in a pretty good place, I just do the quiet ones. And, and all it is, is uh, one of them is a periodic um, gong. I think it's every two or three minutes. And the other one is whatever time you set it for, just lets you know when you're done and that's it. Yeah, I would recommend for folks uh, like you who got in through an app, which are almost always narrated, you know, guided, which is, I think, an excellent way to start, though. They'll eventually do the silent meditations, even when you don't feel like you have it in you to do a silent one. Um, like, I think you, the term you use is often never, never land. Mm-hmm. When that happens and you're not, you know, you're not like, you're not having a good day and you're like, well, sometimes, if you keep going to never, never land addressing that it, it builds a muscle that you wouldn't otherwise build. And I think it also gives you some insight sometimes. So I think guided meditations are great. I think you should continue to do them, but I would encourage you to not even like sometimes do a silent one, even when you don't feel like you're up to doing a silent one and, try see, that. and see what happens. Yeah. I'll try that. But that's not where you start. If anybody is listening and want to start do the guided ones for like a month or two months until you're really comfortable with the process you don't need to do it. I mean, the way I learned, there were no apps when I learned. Um, we got some training, and then we went immediately into silent meditation. And the first ten, I remember my first ten minute silent meditation session, and it was, it was horrible. It, it lasted an hour, right? <laughs> it, it lasted ten hours. I don't know, but it, it just, um, it was so hard. But back then, that's just the way you did it. And then, like, I did all day retreats, and so, so I got much better at it over time, and it got easier. But the only way you get better at it is to do it. And if you get that crutch of always having someone guide you, I don't think you're, it's like um, you're not getting to the, to the fourth gear of meditation. If you don't build that muscle, I'll, I'll accept that challenge. All right. Well, that wasn't in the outline, <laughs> <laughs> but it is, uh, it is, I think part of the idea of focus. I mean, the, I feel like the reason this show exists is because uh, there's a lots of good productivity advice. We give it out on this show too. But I think the underlying problem of this age is focus. It's not productivity. In fact, in a lot of ways, productivity is a way to avoid focus because mm-hmm. it becomes its own little, you know, magic, you know, cookie little uh, escape. Uh, but the in the world today, everybody is trying to steal your focus. The whole idea of Uh, Silicon Valley at this point is to sell your focus. They make a lot of money on it. They want you to watch their stuff and stay in their app. And everywhere you go, someone is trying to get you to pay attention to what's important to them and not what's important to you. Um, So with that in mind, we are on this journey together to beat that. And uh, I want to talk to you, Mark. What does focus mean to you? You know, for me, focus is about where you're deliberately applying your attention. And and the interesting thing is, I think you led into this beautifully. There are all kinds of opportunities at all moments of every day for other people who are clamoring for your attention. And what they're really asking for is for your focus. So I think the concept, while, while, while focus itself is easily definable in terms of directing or maintaining your focus. That's where the challenge for me lies because there are so many invitations to give that focus to somebody else. And when I find that a day 
is not one that that felt great to me where I felt like I played whack-a-mole all day, all day or um, to use the language that we've just been using now in, in days where I gave my focus to other people instead of um, applying it where I wanted it to go to make a difference on some things that were important to me. Those are really irritating, uninspiring days. I mean, it, it, you really just feel like the, the day was left lacking and that you, you accomplished less than you were capable of and certainly less than you wanted to accomplish. And so I think for me, focus is a category devoted to how and when and how often I got to use my time and attention in a deliberate way instead of handing it over to others. Am I going to help make Mark Zuckerberg richer today or am I going to move the ball on something important to me? Sure. And and, and another thing about focus is it's a finite resource. We don't have an unlimited amount of it uh, in a day or in a lifetime. You know, at some point, uh, we are going to be put in a wooden box. And at that point, there's no focus left. So what do you want to accomplish while you're here? And the only, you know, the, the mechanism for that is the ability to stay focused and work on what's important to you. Totally agree. How do you hold on to your focus? I mean, you you are a guy, I know from our friendship, that you've got a bunch of people that work for you that have demands. You've got a bunch of clients. And I did that for 30 years. I get it. Clients are always pulling focus. And then you've got your coaching people that you work with. I mean, how do you hold on to your own focus? Well, I think that for me, the answer is it, uh, when it's working well, what tends to happen is I have decided in advance. And by in advance, I mean the evening before as part of a, a daily shutdown ritual on a perfect day, I will identify what are the three most important things for me to finish or accomplish tomorrow. Um, in a less than perfect day, but still pretty good day, I will make those decisions first thing in the morning as the day begins. But you may notice from the absence of it being mentioned, I don't make those decisions after I have looked at email to see what other people would like me to do for the day. I make those decisions um, based on what's on my list of things to do or my intended priorities. And, you know, on a given day, I'll, I'll get well more than three things done. I think most of us yeah. probably do. Yeah. But I know that if I get those three things done, I get to call the day a win at that point because I got done the things that I decided were most important to me to get done. And only when I have finished those again on a good day, only on, on a good day, I will have finished those things before I give into the temptation to, to go look at email, to, to check to see what phone call message slips have accumulated or, or whatever else uh, has, has come to me, whether it's FedEx or us mail or whatever, um, which really is just other people asking for my attention and saying, do this one next, do this one next. And I, I constantly tell my coaching clients that they've got to turn off the email. I mean, I, I think email has somehow and weirdly become a thing unto itself. I mean, there's just people that think that doing email is, is an important task for the day. And I'm not one of those people. Yeah. To me, email is simply a different method of delivering things that other people wish for you to use your time and attention on. Uh, in, in the beginning of, of your and my legal careers, um, most things would arrive in the U.S. mail. And then, you know, the, what most of us were taught by more senior attorneys that were training us was you let that thing sit for a day or so after you think you know what you want to say. Uh, or if you've already dictated a response, you you let the response sit there for a day and make sure that emotions and other things did not get the better of you. 
and then you send it out and two or three days later, they get it back in the mail and they do the same. And that set the pace of, of communication. And then uh, faxes came along and, you know, lawyers were addicted to faxes. You know, they'd, they'd, yeah. they'd write these letters and instead of mailing them and getting three days, you'd get it as, as a really crummy, fuzzy, you know, representation of the letter that would come three days before the original would come in the mail. Because for some reason, we always had to do that too. And it would get there a lot more quickly because it would come in less than three days. And, and so that started to speed up the pace of communication. And then some of us got addicted to FedEx because it absolutely positively did need to be there overnight. Uh, and, and so it was, and it went, uh, and that compressed the time period. And I, I think what happened is somewhere along the line, most people gave into the idea that because it was easy and fast to send an email, the response should come just as fast. And I think that's what set most of us up to start failing. Yeah. I've told this story on the show, but I remember I had this one abusive attorney. I was opposing counsel on a case I was working on who would send me multiple emails a day and it was just getting ridiculous. And at one point he sent me one on a Sunday night at 10 PM and I, uh, I rerouted the email to my secretary. So anything that came from him went to her. <laughs> and my, my instruction to her was, you know, collect it for three days. Don't show it to me for three days. I will dictate a letter back to him and then we'll send it with a stamp. And, <laughs> and it worked, it worked. I mean, he, like when I started doing that, eventually it stopped because he realized that, you know, when, when, with, when he uh, did that to me, he did not get the cookie of me immediately responding. And right after a while, he just stopped doing that because, you know, I kind of trained him, but yeah, as lawyers, I think that's really a thing. And then, you know, it went from, from FedEx to email, then the email at the end of my practice, I had a bunch of clients and people saying, well, just give me your phone number and I'll text you. I'm like, no, you're not going to do that. <laughs> I'm right. not gonna, you know, I'm not going to be texting you about this case. So uh, just forget about that. But I do think in the law, it's very tempting to get pulled into, into a false urgency. Boy, you said a lot right there. False urgency is, is everything. This episode of the Focus Podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com slash focus and make your next move and enter offer code FOCUS at checkout to get 10% off of your first purchase. It seems like every six months or so, we learn that putting our stuff on somebody else's platform is a bad idea. You really should own your presence on the internet, and the best way to do that is with Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform for building your brand and growing your business online. With Squarespace, you can build a beautiful website and engage your audience and sell pretty much anything, products, services, and even content you create. So much of what I've done on the internet started with Squarespace. With Squarespace, you can use insights to grow your business. If you've ever wondered where your site visits and sales are coming from and which channels are most effective, you can analyze all of that in Squarespace. And once you've got that data, you can improve your website and build a marketing strategy based on top keywords or the most popular products and content. You can also stand out in any inbox with Squarespace email campaigns. So why not encourage your visitors to sign up as email subscribers and start them on a journey to become loyal customers? Just start with an email template and customize it by applying your brand ingredients like site colors and logo. Plus, built-in analytics measure the impact of every send. Between myself and my family, I can think of six different Squarespace websites that we've 
directly used. We've also recommended it to a bunch of friends. And it's such an easy recommend because when you set somebody up on Squarespace, you're empowering them to run their own beautiful website. You don't have to make them dependent on a developer. I think anybody getting started should use Squarespace, but it can really grow with you and your business. So head to squarespace.com slash focused for a free trial with no credit card required. And when you're ready to launch, use that offer code focused, F-O-C-U-S-E-D, to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Once again, that is squarespace.com slash focused. And when you decide to sign up, use that offer code focused to get that 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for the podcast. And our thanks to Squarespace for their support of the Focused Podcast and all of Relay FM. All right, Mark, before the break, I threw a piece of red meat to your feet called false urgency. <laughs> Boy, and I jumped right at it too. Yeah, uh, I know this is a thing you deal with a lot, not only in your own practice, but your coaching and, and your clients. How do you want to start this? I, I feel like the Eisenhower matrix is a good place to kind of frame this, but where do you want to go with this? I, I think that's a tremendous place to start because it, it gives us the vocabulary to have the rest of the discussion. All right, so for people who are not familiar with this, uh, the, and uh, the Eisenhower matrix, I believe Dwight Eisenhower came up with it, or maybe we just call it that. I don't know the actual history behind it, but imagine a grid of four items, two by two. And if you already know this, feel free to let your mind wander for the next two minutes. Uh, but either way, at, at the top is a importance column, and next to that is a is a prior is a is an urgency column. I guess you would say. So you have you can have things that are important, but urgent, or you can th- have things, and that would be like A1, then A2, the next one over uh, to the right would be uh, important, but not urgent. And then below that, we'd have B1, which is urgent, but not important. And then B2 would be not important, not urgent. That's actually quite hard to do um, to describe verbally, <laughs> I realized halfway through that <laughs> conversation. But so you've got a matrix where you can take any task and say, is this important? Is this urgent? And then you can locate it on that matrix and then kind of decide what you're going to do with it. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think the the most important thing that everybody should to take away from that is that last block, the, the lower right block, anything that is neither important nor urgent. I think we should all immediately agree are things you should not be devoting your time and attention to uh, unless everything else in your life that is either urgent or important has already been addressed. And for most of you, my guess is you'll never get there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and sometimes that is stuff that is not important, not urgent, but still needs to get done. And that's great stuff to look at in delegation automation, or, you know, just getting it to where it's not your problem. But I do think the problem that I feel like the modern world has created with respect to the Eisenhower matrix. And I talked about this, I did a session in Sean Blanc's um, focus course about this, but I feel like the matrix has been turned into a line where people now equate urgency with importance. And I think it's partly because of what we talked about in the last segment about how communications is so fast and everything moves so fast now that when something becomes urgent, you just assume that it's important. And it's, it's very easy to fall into that trap to turn a four-box grid into a line where on one side you have urgent equals important, and on the other side you have not urgent equals not important. And both of those are a lie. 
I think that's a really nice metaphor. The idea that 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 grid really gets turned into a line instead of a, a matrix. Um, you know, the, the other way that I think that helps some people think about this is to say that somewhere along the line we have decided that urgency outranks importance. Yeah, and the people, including ostensibly President Eisenhower, uh, who promote this this thought process of asking yourself, is this urgent or important? Yes or no on each of those. And so you end up with things that are both urgent and important or just important, but not urgent or just urgent, but not important. Um, I think what those people would say is that there's, there's a reason that we identify both urgency and importance in this matrix. And one of the critical reasons that we have to pay attention to the difference is things which are important are things that have long range benefits uh, or in some cases, consequence avoidance, because we we did the small tasks along the way that were important to do, even though they were not urgent. And most of the people that have written about this, including Covey, um, have, have pointed out that the most difficult challenge, if you look at this as a matrix, is to make sure that you are doing the things that are important but not urgent before you do the things that are urgent but not important. And there's all kinds of reasons that we gravitate toward doing the things that are urgent. Uh, you know, just the other day, you mentioned our prep call. I, I told you I read an article that morning that uh, there's some new psychological research that's out that implies that one of the reasons that we elevate urgency over importance is we get a dopamine hit from resolving something that felt urgent. We feel like, you know, satisfied and, and, you know, well, you get, as I said, you get the dopamine hit. There's nothing better in, in life than yeah. a good dopamine hit, yeah. uh, especially if you want to reinforce behavior. And, and so the, the, you know, our brain is in some cases tricking us into pursuing things that are urgent, mostly because we haven't taught our brain that we're entitled to a dopamine hit when we do something important, because there's a long-term consequence. It's, it's the uh, the short-term win versus the, the long-term win phenomenon where uh, a lot of long-term wins either never get realized or, or never get pursued simply because there wasn't an immediate reward. Uh, and the delayed gratification causes us to underscore the value of things that are important but not urgent. And it's possible, apparently, to retrain yourself to recognize that when you've done something important, that that's worthy of celebration and reinforces the idea that you're entitled to a dopamine hit then. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why the idea of a shutdown or a planning where you say, I have three big things I'm going to do tomorrow, um, that is so important because it does help you kind of celebrate the important and not the urgent. Right. And if you can build that muscle, you, uh, you, are, you are bucks ahead. And I really think that it's a difficult muscle to build because genetically – uh, we are these ancient brains that were on the, you know, out on the veldt and worried about getting eaten by lions. And, you know, the urgent was important when you're out there trying to stay alive, right? But, you know, the short time is all that really mattered to somebody who's wandering with a group of nomads and trying to not get eaten by lions. So, so it's really deeply embedded in us, but it is completely the wrong priority or the wrong instinct for the modern world. 
you know, I, I had one of my coaching clients debating with me whether it was really correct to do important things before urgent things. And the example I went to what was a nerdy one that I'm sure you would appreciate, which, which was, I said, you know, you have to back up your computer. It's irresponsible not to do that, but you're not going to get a dopamine hit from doing that. There's, you know, nobody's going to pat you on the back saying, good job. You backed up your computer. But if you did it, and you've lost a file or a hard drive or had a crash, you're going to get to recover in minutes instead of days or weeks, if ever. And the fact that you did the important task, even though it wasn't urgent, will have its payoff at that moment in time. And he paused in the middle of that description. He said, I can see that. And he said, now for the first time, I understand what you're saying about making sure you're doing the important things before you give in to mere urgency. And, and, you know, I think that there's another part of, you know, I like to use the phrase urgency addiction because it, it to me, it gets back to that whole idea of the dopamine hits and, and explains why we have this preference. But I, I, I think that, that there's this, um, I guess the phrase I want to use is um, th- there's a way that I think we can motivate ourselves to try to elevate importance over urgency. And the way I like to do that is to say, if I'm, if, you know, for me, the biggest temptation here is always email, right? Yeah. Because there's always somebody who's emailing you and an email really just boils down to, I'm the most recent person to try to capture your attention. And my preference is that you do the thing I would like you to do before you do any of the other things in your life that you wish to do. Yeah. It, it, it's a request for time and attention. Uh, and it's just a delivery vehicle. It's no different than a FedEx envelope or a fax. It's a delivery vehicle for a request. I remember once I was on vacation and I had told my clients, uh, I'm going on vacation. If there's something urgent, let me know. But otherwise, I'll deal with it when I get back. And I'm sitting there on the beach in Hawaii and some client calls me and he's like, well, you know, hey, I um, I know you're on vacation but I, uh, you know, my wife and I were talking and we're thinking about maybe doing some succession planning. And we're wondering if you could, you know, sit down and talk to us about it. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll be back in two weeks. He's like, well, how about tomorrow? I know you're on vacation, but how about tomorrow? (laughs) You know? And, and like the world is constantly doing that to us. And I think the only way to respond to it is to push back. Like in that case, I told the client, I said, well, I'm on vacation, so I'm not going to do it tomorrow, but I'll do it with you in two weeks. And if I got back from vacation and he went and found another lawyer, you know, God bless him. You know, I, that's fine with me. And I, but I'm just not going to let people do that to us. And uh, the the problem is so often it's not another person doing it; it's actually our own selves doing it to ourselves. Right. You know, exactly that's, right because you've given the permission. Yeah. And you know what I often say to, particularly to a litigator type lawyers, is if you give in to the notion that you have to have your email open at all times and that you need to respond instantly to whatever has been most recently emailed to you, what you're really doing is deliberately making yourself the puppet of whoever emailed you most recently. And that usually that phrasing usually gets under the skin of those kinds of people in a way that allows me to get their attention. Uh, Cause the last thing they want to be is accused of, deliberately becoming someone else's puppet by choice. Yeah. Well, opposing counsel can manipulate you. Going back to my earlier story, if I had dropped everything every time that Bozo sent me an email, I would not be moving the ball forward on my client's case. I would be in reaction mode to him 100% of the time. Well, that's just the thing. 
and you know, even if it's if it's not the bozo lawyer, even if it's just the client who's saying, "Hey, I'd like you to to you know respond to me immediately on this new thing I just thought of." I'm sure they would like you to respond to them as quickly as possible. But the thing is, they don't know what other commitments or obligations uh, or things potentially of greater urgency or greater importance are lurking on your calendar or in your life. And so I think that at some level, it's also completely wrong to simply delegate to them the decision of what you will do next based solely on the idea that they were the most recent person to contact you. Yeah. And I used to have a a speech I would give clients related to that, particularly when I was litigating and in trial. And I would say, look, I'm in trial right now. And that means I'm giving 100% of myself to this one client and I can't help you right now. Mm -hmm. But what I will promise you is that one day when you're in trial and you need me, I will be there for you 100% and nobody else. So you're just going to be patient with me now, but one day it'll be your turn. You know, and that actually really resonated well with clients. Yeah, I, I started my legal career in, in doing litigation, and we used to say a similar thing to our clients as well. And it, it does work. They do understand. Um, you know, the the issue in many cases really boils down to the simple notion that there's only one legal case that any particular client is particularly concerned about, and that's theirs. Yeah, <laughs> and they often have no perception of the fact that others are in the same position, and that your time needs to be divided and sorted and and they don't understand the relative obligations or commitments that, that that exist there in my experience most clients both in the law and outside the law are are willing to be told that I can't do this now but I can get back to you day after tomorrow for most people that's just fine on a rare occasion you'll hear somebody say it won't wait that long so getting back to the Eisenhower matrix turned into the Eisenhower line if somebody out there listening is thinking, you know what? I think I have turned it into a line. I am equating urgency with importance and uh, and non-urgency with non-importance, which is not true. How do you how do you tell them to get past that? What, what's your advice to somebody who's who's struggling with that right now? Well, I think that I would have them go through the list of things that whether they're using a to-do list or they've got a you know some tool that's tracking. Uh, their tasks and commitments and so forth, uh, and have them score everything that they've just recently done and everything that's yet to be done in the next short window of time in terms of both urgency and importance and have them look back at what they've done because there's a lesson in the decisions that they're making. Um, So for example, if they discover, as I suspect will often be the case, um, that if they're in the situation of your hypothetical, they're, they're in a mode where on reflection, they're realizing they've been elevating importance over um, elevating urgency over importance. They're going to see that reflected in their decisions, which leads to a discussion about why are you doing that and why, if you acknowledge that these other things are in fact more important, why did you choose to do those first? And that it allows them to get in touch with the fact that they're addicted to urgency and they did so only because it felt better to do the urgent thing first. So if you call if you call that out, if you if you name the thing you're trying to tame, it's a lot easier to gain control over it. So that's, I think, strategy number one. Reflect back on what you did and what worked and what didn't and why. And there's a lesson waiting for there for you almost every time. Yeah. I mean, so often just documenting and and doing a, you know, a looking at it after the fact can really help help open your eyes. The other thing I would say is I think there are different kinds of urgency and 
I would go to the next step and say, not only look at what's urgent, but look at the source of urgency. Like uh, some stuff is urgent because one of your customer calls you with an emergency that you had no idea was going to happen. Other stuff is urgent because it was earlier, not urgent, but you just didn't do it. Yeah. And that, that stuff in particular, if you have a lot of stuff that's urgent because you didn't do it when it was not urgent, uh, that feeds into what Mark calls the urgency addiction. And I think that, you know, like, like whenever somebody tells me, Oh, just give me a deadline. I'm really good on a deadline. And I, I always think, Oh, okay. So they're using, you know, the urgency cookie to get work done and they're just going to sit on it until the last minute. And I, I feel like that is a warning sign. No question. It means they're giving up on all, all of what's important and eventually they're going to experience uh, the professional work equivalent of an earthquake. This episode of the focus podcast is brought to you by clean my Mac X go to clean my Mac X slash focused and make your Mac as good as new and get 5% off. Man, do I love this app. Clean My Mac X is a constant companion for me on my Mac. It takes care of all the maintenance tasks so I don't have to. The Mac is a crucial tool for your work and your focus. And Clean My Mac X, developed by MacPaw, pursues the mission to help your machines help you. Clean My Mac X is an ideal decluttering app for the Mac that can keep it in tip-top shape. I've been using this app for a long time. And one of my favorite features of this app is that they are never done making new features. You can use it to declutter your computer. You can use it to run those maintenance scripts that none of us ever remember to do on our own. I just used it the other day to optimize my Apple Mail database with one click of one button. Anybody driving a Mac should have Clean My Mac X. There are 29 tools in total to prevent the most common issues Mac users have. It can prevent your Mac from catching malware prevent overheating. It can speed up performance. It can find hidden junk folders. Whatever the maintenance thing you need to do, Clean My Mac X seems to do it. It's notarized by Apple, so it's been checked for security, and it won a Red Dot Award for the best design Mac app in 2021. In the free version of Clean My Mac X, you have a free menu app to check your Mac's health. Clean My Mac has been around for 14 years and basically invented Mac cleaning. All Focus listeners get 5% off. Check out the link in the show notes or go to cleanmymac.com slash focused. Once again, cleanmymac.com slash focused or click that link in the show notes for your 5% off. Clean your Mac today with Clean My Mac X. And thank you, Clean My Mac X, for your support of the Focus podcast and all of Relay FM. We talked about Eisenhower earlier. One of my favorite Eisenhower stories, I read this in one of the Ryan Holiday books. I don't remember which one at this point, but with the day he got inaugurated as president, he went to the White House. The butler brought him a tray full of envelopes with his, his mail, his first delivery of mail as a president. And he said, wait, you need to understand that this will never happen again. You know, I never expect to receive mail in envelopes again. I expect someone to open the mail, go through the mail, bring me only that which needs my attention. And it was like a, an expectation setting. And it like, it really, when I heard that story, I was like, yes, I need to adopt that in my life. Anytime somebody brings me something, I need to think of, well, how could they have done better to help me? But a lot of people listening, myself included, have this like gut feeling against getting help. You know, sometimes it's like, I don't want to spend the money. Sometimes it's, uh, I don't want to train them. Or sometimes it's like, I only, I can do this. 
And I know this is something that you work a lot with your clients or your your coaching subjects on because lawyers are probably the worst at not getting help. How, if somebody's out there and needs help, Mark, what are you going to tell them? Well, you know, I think there's there's a lot of different ways you could could get into that discussion. But I think one of the things that's important for everybody to realize that hasn't owned up to the idea yet is if you were going to solve the problem of marshalling and, and taking control of your own attention, you would already have done it. So one of the most important reasons to ask for help or to go buy help or read books or try to figure out some way out of the mess that you put yourself in is, you know, it's back to the, you know, you, you, the Eisenhower quotes are, are great, by the way, in those stories, those are always fun. I, I love the old, I, uh, the old Einstein quote that says, um, doing things the same way and expecting different results is the definition of insanity. Uh, if you were, if you were going to figure out how to get control of your time or your focus or your energy or your attention, you would already have done it. By definition, if you're in that that boat, you need some other help, some other resource. Now, whether that's more knowledge so that you can learn to think in a different way and read a book to get there or listen to a podcast to help you get there or learn to meditate to help you get there or pursue a coaching relationship so that somebody can stand alongside you and point out what's working and what's not and help get you back on track. Some outside input is clearly going to be necessary. Otherwise, you're going to keep doing what you've been doing, which means you'll keep getting what you get. Yeah. I like that quote too from <laughs> Einstein. So let's break that down though. Um, what are the what are the reasons people give you that they they can't get help? You know, I think that they're varied. So one type of answer to that is sadly unique to attorneys. And, and that is, in most cases, lawyers are really fast conceptual learners. And one of the things they taught us to do in law school was to learn to master forest and trees um, analyses very, very quickly so that we could understand the way systems or processes work or the way a sequence of, of cause and effect things work. So you can quickly triage and diagnose either weaknesses to be exploited or weaknesses to eliminate in order to provide for, for better protection for your client. And one of the, the sicknesses that comes along with that, and that's, that's my word, it's not really a term of art, um, is that it's pretty easy to persuade ourselves um, that if it was possible to solve this problem, I would have already done it because I'm the smartest person in the room. <laughs> yeah, a lot of lawyers think that. <laughs> um, so step one is often uh, asking people to get in touch with the idea that maybe there's a solution out there that you didn't think of uh, and to help gently you know, show them that. I think that works really, really well. I also think that explaining to, to people that you had a version of this problem before, you had a less severe version of it now than you used to have. Um, helps humanize you to them so that they can you know, recognize that this isn't a failing on their part, but rather it's a normal part of the, of the process of mastering time and attention delivery. So I think some of it is, is about getting out of your own way. Um, when I work with my, my own coach, I, I've often said over the years that I feel like at the end of a great coaching session, I feel like I'm a racehorse that has had some blinders removed. And I suddenly realize there are things I'm capable of seeing 
on the periphery that I had no idea that were there because I had the blinders on. And, and the, for, for me, the, the comical reveal is there are always more blinders to remove. There are always things that, that you have tunnel vision on. And one of the great things about getting help from somebody else in whatever form, whether it's a, a book or a podcast or a lecture or a coaching relationship, is the, the best of those interactions will cause you to recognize yet another instance where you're trapped in a in a bit of tunnel vision and you're overlooking solutions and opportunities that exist simply because you don't see that they're there. Yeah. Agreed. And and it's so hard. Yeah, kind of it's similar to the idea, the resistance to meditation, because you feel like it's a waste of time. Coaching relationships, peer relationships. I'm in a mastermind group of people who make stuff for the internet. And we have our week retreat coming up in in a month. And the you know, there is a part of me, Mark, that hates the idea of doing this so much. I can't even explain the idea of not being producing for four days, but you mm-hmm. know, singing kumbaya with people who I know and love and they're great people. And I had a moment like that last week, like, oh, you know, is there a way I could get out of this? You know, <laughs> I would rather just work. And then I went and read my journal entries from last year after we did it. And I got so many blinders removed. I'm like, oh, this is crazy. This is so valuable to me. But I do think there's like a gut instinct part of us that doesn't want to do this stuff. Well, you know, you'd probably resonate with our mutual friend, Victor Medina, loves to say that for him, a great coaching session uh, feels like he leveled up. Sure. And, And I think there's a whole lot of truth in that. There's, there's, there's something to be said for other people can help you see things that you can't for yourselves. I mean, professional athletes have known this their entire career. I, I live in Chicago, uh, Chicago suburbs now. Um, I grew up in Southern Illinois, um, but my whole professional life has been spent in the in the suburbs of Chicago. And time-wise, that included the the time when people named Jordan and Pippen and Rodman were playing basketball in Chicago, and and that was a thing of absolute wonder to watch people that talented work together to accomplish what they did. It was a lot of fun to watch. But there came a day where I realized that. As good as he was, Michael Jordan had multiple coaches to help him. He had a guy who did nothing but watch his free throw form and correct things. A guy that good had somebody coaching him. Yeah. Progress in anything in, that, that involves changing what you're doing ultimately revolves around three steps. The, the, the uh, psychologists that have researched people that have improved their performance in various different ways have concluded that that success in making change, and this even includes research that's been done in, in, in improving business and professional practice performances, um, begins with uh, a compelling reason. You know, the reason the gyms are full of people on January 2 and empty by March 1 is because the people who thought it might be cool to feel a little better and look a little better uh, didn't really have a compelling reason to be there. And other things became more important over the course of the ensuing next 60 days. And the people who are still in the gym on March 2nd are the ones whose doctors told them, if you don't do this, you will die. And those people had a compelling reason and they're still there. So step one is you've got to get a compelling reason, which means that sometimes your motivation um, lies in making sure you understand why you're doing what you're doing or why you think you need to make a change or what improvement to your life or your output or whatever makes enduring change worthwhile. The second step 
is to have a system of accountability. And that's where your mastermind group fits in. One of the things that I suspect makes you folks successful is at the end of one of those meetings, you tell each other one or two or or three of the things that you're going to work on before you get together again, right? Sure. Yeah. Every week. And the last thing you want to do is go see those people next quarter and tell them, oh, I didn't do any of that stuff. Yeah. (laughs) The, The fact that you told them that this is what you're playing for has increased the odds that you will actually be motivated to do and complete that work um, as difficult as it may be and, and through as much change as you may otherwise resist because it's part of your accountability. You told those other people you were going to do that and it propels you forward when you get stuck. That's why reading your journal broke you free. I feel like um, for a lot of us, myself included, it is a lot easier to let myself down than somebody else. Oh, sure. So a hack for this is involve another person. And then the the third step in in making and perfecting change is coaching and direction where somebody from the outside is able to constantly put you back on the track to where you're trying to go because they can see the places that you're off track that you can't. And it's 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 like a, a virtuous circle. You know, the 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 coaching and direction helps you more um, fervently adhere to what you said you wanted to do. And the system of accountability helps give you the motivation to stay in that direction. And the coaching refines your direction. And what, you know, there's that, there's that old, I, I've never checked the math on it, but there's that old uh, saw that if a, an airplane leaves LAX uh, and its direction is off by one tenth of one degree, uh, the plane will end up in North Carolina and not New York city. Yeah. So the coach's job is to constantly help you nudge the the steering back to the correct direction because you're you're slowly going astray in a way that you don't even yet recognize. And the system of accountability is all about keeping you moving. And those three things when they're present is is how you can make sustainable lasting change in anything you're trying to accomplish, whether it's a a, a law practice or improving a business or improving a relationship or whatever. Um and, and I think there's a, a hidden piece under this too, which is that backwards reflection. You're getting that with your journaling. You know, some of the best improvement that I've ever seen in people comes from reflecting back on a daily or a weekly basis about what worked and why the why is really important and what didn't work and why. And it's through that reflection process, you get better at choosing weapons and strategies that have the the outcomes and the effects that you're looking for. And over time, you just get better at it because you learn to make better decisions. So what about the people out there listening who are like, you know what, Mark makes a good point. I should get a coach. How, how do they get started? Or what about the people who are like, I might want a coach, but I'm not sure. Well, I guess we've made that argument. Uh, but how, how do you get started in this stuff from the blind if you, you just don't even know where to start getting help? Well, you know, thankfully the internet's out there, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and there are an awful lot of people out there and an awful lot of resources out there that are designed to have coaching of all sorts of different kinds and categories. I, I'm only half kidding when I say thankfully the internet's out there because, you know, there's this pricing model that, for example, those uh, meditation apps are all done on a pricing model that I call the crack dealer model. The first week is free and then you pay after that. Uh, and, and there are a lot of coaching opportunities that are out there, many, many uh, coaches and, and programs that are available to help guide you and, and, and help you make progress. 
uh, will offer you a, a meeting or two at no charge or a meeting or two with money back guarantees so that you can try it out and make sure that you like these people and that you feel like this is going to work for you. So I guess my direct answer to your question here, David, is go find a couple and try them. Yeah. And, and I would add to that, beware of snake oil, because I feel like there is a lot of snake oil on the internet too. And people selling themselves as coaches that just give you a bunch of platitudes. You want somebody who really cares about you and and coaches to your needs, to your course correction, not just you know a bunch of bullet points out of a book. Also, I would say, in addition to getting a coach, get a peer group. I mean, I uh, I resisted masterminds for years. Just the word mastermind gave me the willies. You know, I mean, what a terrible name! Like, like we're all masterminds. Give me a break. You know, but the um, in fact, the group. I think we I'm, can blame Napoleon Hill for the label, right? Yeah. Well, our group doesn't call ourselves a mastermind group, but I always refer to it once so people understand. But we never use that word because we realize that all of us are are deeply flawed humans, and we're trying to figure it out together. Which I, I almost feel like it's like fellow travelers. Find some fellow travelers that can help help you keep yourself accountable. My group meets once a week, and it is uh, there's six. Wow, of, I yeah. thought you were in a quarterly group. Weekly is really powerful. No, we do it every week, and we like we added one person last year. And when we we approached him, we said just to be really clear, you're going to give us an hour a week, fifty two hours a year, and. If you're not comfortable with that, we don't want you to join because, you know, it's a rare exception that somebody misses and we really, we do hold each other accountable, but having a peer group really helps. And I think that's another way, but a coach, a peer group, uh, don't try and go on this journey by yourself. Well, you know, you can, the most recent research I read in the case of professional, um, um, service businesses is that less than 2% of the people that don't use both a coach and a system of accountability are going to succeed. This episode of the Focus Podcast is brought to you by NetSuite. Being a business owner or working closely with business owners means knowing your numbers. If your business earns millions or maybe tens of millions in revenue, stop what you're doing and take a listen because NetSuite by Oracle just rolled out the best offer. NetSuite gives you the visibility and control you need to make better decisions faster. And for the first time in NetSuite's 22 years as the number one cloud financial system, you can defer payments of a full NetSuite implementation for six months. That's no payment and no interest for six months. And you can take advantage of this special financing offer today. NetSuite is number one because they give your business everything you need in real time, all in one place to reduce manual processes, boost efficiency, build forecasts, and increase productivity across every department. Having all the information you need in one place makes it so much easier to make decisions. I know as a business owner what a difference that can make and how much easier everything operates when information is available. It really means smart decisions can be made faster. And the NetSuite offer is extraordinary. So join the 33,000 companies who have already upgraded to NetSuite and gain visibility and control over their financials, inventory, HR, e-commerce, and more. If you've been sizing NetSuite up to make the switch, then you know this deal is unprecedented. No interest, no payments. Take advantage of this special financing offer at netsuite.com slash focus. That's netsuite.com slash focus to get the visibility and control you need to weather any storm. 
N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash focused. And our thanks to NetSuite for their support of the Focus podcast and all of Relay FM. All right, Mark, we have been on the mountain here for an hour talking about how to stay wow. focused. But let's uh, let's be real for a minute. When, when does this get hard for you? You know, where do you hit your roadblocks and how do you get past them? Well, I don't know anybody who has any type of a business of any sort, whether it's a professional practice or not, that doesn't periodically experience a wave of too much uh, in the way of work that needs to happen in too short a period of time, or for whatever confluence of events, there's a whole bunch of demands for your time and attention that just all coalesce. And if your personality makeup is that you want to try to help people or please people, you will periodically find yourself behind the eight ball of there is more demand for your time than there is time available to meet those demands. And for me, where it gets hardest to, to stay true to the path is, is when you're in one of those, those waves of there are just too many demands for my time and attention right now. And it becomes really easy to stop doing the important things and give into the urgency. And boy, do you just pay a price for that later. I still haven't figured out how to avoid in times of just complete duress and stress, giving into the urgency, even though I know that there's going to be a consequence on the other side. I, I still haven't figured out the ultimate path out of that. Now, to, to a certain extent, hiring and training people and building systems in your business will easily help with that. But what most of us will from time to time say as a logical objection to that um, is, well, I, I don't yet have enough work to do to keep somebody else busy. So I just have to suck it up and suffer until I get so much work available that I can't possibly do it all. And only by hiring somebody to do that extra work can I possibly uh, justify continuing to help other people or, or agree to be hired or, or sell more widgets or whatever. There's two elements there you're talking about. that. So the the first one is avoiding the urgency problem by getting ahead of it, you know, looking at things that could become urgent and cutting them off by getting help. But then there's also the secondary urgency where even though you have all the help in the world, sometimes the proverbial, you know, what hits the fan, right? Life has lifed you. Yeah. I I think that's, that's an accurate observation. And by the way, the, the solution to the first part of what you've, that first category you teased out, is I think to reflect back after you're out of the the worst of it to say what was working and why and what wasn't working and why and work on what you can to improve your ability to deal with the next time you run into one of those circumstances. Um, there, there's lessons in, in all of that. I mean, yeah. at, at the risk of, of, of getting too deep in the weeds on this, I mean, one of the lessons that I, I teach the people I coach early in our relationship is the importance of not letting the piles on their desk and floor and chairs and credenza uh, and hallway leading to the office and everywhere else in their life um, to not let those things get out of control. Because first of all, that, that just sentences you to permanent urgency addiction, but more importantly, every one of those things, every one of those pieces of paper or folders or whatever is a hidden lesson in what is currently missing that will allow you to have better control over your focus and attention. Everything that's parked on your desk is there for a reason. And sometimes that reason is 
um, your desk is serving as a to-do list. And I think, David, you would agree as, as a guy that loves to-do list software, perhaps more than any other category of software out there, that there are better tools for that than piles of paper on your desk, right? Yeah. yeah. And in fact, I feel like that really over time became a leading indicator for me of professionals that know what they're doing versus ones that don't. And sure. when I was young, I had a lot of litigation as a young, and I spent all this time with other lawyers. And that was back in the day where you'd actually go to their offices. And I, I saw a trend. Uh, when I'd go visit a lawyer and their office was clean and they would sit across the desk and look you in the eye, when you got to trial with those guys, look out, you know. And then if you went into a guy's office and he had papers and stacks of stuff all over the place and he was yelling out the door to his secretary in the middle of your conversation with him, those were the guys I could pants in trial. And, mm-hmm. and it was, it was absolutely 100% consistent. And to the, to this day, like when I go to hire a doctor or something and we go to see them, if they can give me their full attention, I I feel like, Oh, this is somebody that I would like to work with. Um, anytime you see somebody that's frazzled, I feel like they don't have the focus that I want for if I'm going to pay this person, you know, hundred percent. But you know, there's other reasons that stuff ends up in those piles on their desks too. Um, sometimes it's because you're the only person that knows how to complete that task. So you, you've sentenced yourself to some of those piles because you haven't bothered to teach other people how to handle that particular type of task. Yeah. So sometimes there's proof there in the waiting for you to identify other things you could be training your team members to do. And the great thing is once you've trained them to do it, not only do you not have to do it anymore, but then those items won't be on your desk any longer. Totally. There's a lot to be said about reflecting on on what we've done that works and what we've done that didn't work and and the whys that live behind each of those. Because each one of them is an opportunity to improve our effectiveness, where in this case, I think effectiveness revolves around, did I apply my focus, that is my time and my attention and my energy, in a way that at the end of the day causes me to feel satisfied with what I did for the day? So when's the last time you fell off the wagon, Mark? What happened? Um, you mean what, what prompted the fall off the wagon? Sure. And how'd you get back on? I think the last time I had a big fall off the wagon was the last time I had a, an extensive, um, it wasn't quite a trial, but it was a series of hearings in court over the course of several days. And the fact that I had to devote such a large block of time and attention to one matter meant that everything else was left sitting to the side. And I, uh, I I have a personality makeup that I, I have a little more people pleasing in me than is probably good for my own good. And so I was busy flogging myself every day uh, when we got done with that, that series of hearings about, you know, frankly, stories that were going on in my head that probably there wasn't even good evidence for that. I was letting all these people down and I was a miserable failure as a result of that. And I just had to work through it. I, I will tell you though, that when it comes back to things that are kind of left for you to do because you haven't trained anybody else to do them. I, I had this great paralegal years ago um, who used to randomly show up at my door sometime late in the afternoon, not, not every day, but you know, once or twice a week. And she would just lurk in the door until I noticed her. And then I'd say, what do you need? And she would say, what are you doing? And why am I not doing it? Which is like the greatest question in the world yeah. from one of your team members. And usually 
more often than not, the answer was because I haven't shown you how yet. So then she would sit down with her pad of paper, follow along as I would describe what it was I was doing and why I was doing that instead of some other variant of the, the, the approach. And she would then go back and document that process and then bring it back to me pretty much fully formed after that so that we could then edit it down and then give it to other people so that other folks could do that task. And the more you do that kind of thing, uh, the more you free yourself from some of the drudgery, you know, some of that nonsense that really doesn't even need to be sucking away your time, your energy, and your attention so that you can focus on the things that really make a difference for you and the people you're trying to help. Yeah, that is so hard for people, uh, lawyers in particular, but I think everybody like they are so resistant to getting help. That kind of gets to that thing I was mentioning earlier where you think, well, only I can do this or only I can do this to the quality that it needs to be. Or, or there's that that ugly first cousin of that notion, which is it will take me longer to describe you, to you how to do this than to do it. So I'll just do it, which sentences you to permanently being the only one that ever does that. Yeah. I think if there's any task you're ever going to do again, it's worth documenting so that somebody else can do it the next time. And, you know, there's, there's tools that, that you've used for years, like, like ScreenFlow, for example, uh, or if you're a windows person, there's Camtasia and a whole bunch of other ones that are out there. Make movies about what you're doing on your computer screen to accomplish these tasks. And other people can play the movie and follow along with you to do the task. Yeah. And I have like lately started on my team using a loom for that. Because it's, mm-hmm. you know, it just saves it to the web. I send them a link. Anything I do, I can say, well, this is how you do a refund or whatever. And then they have that link. They can go back and watch it every time they do it. Sure. And literally follow along step by step. And, you know, the joke when I teach lawyers, you know, how to do this, one of the things I say is, you know, you'll know you're winning this game when you walk through the office and you see people playing one of the movies that you made alongside themselves following along. And you'll also notice if you pay close attention that they can play that video as many times as they want. And the video will never get annoyed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, uh, but you know, going back to screencast, that's a good example. I was in on the early beta of that app. I consider myself a power user of it and very competent at it. And I do good work in, in screen flow. So that would be the thing where I'd say, well, only I can do this, but guess what? I have an editor that does a lot of work for me. I actually have two people helping me. And they are both better at it than I am. Even though I think I'm an expert, they are super experts. Mm-hmm. And when I take the time to pay them, when I get them the video early enough so they have time to edit it, uh, the final product is better. And it's just that simple. And you know, that's a thing that I have to, to think about. So the time I spend editing, I could be creating another video. It, it's not that hard. I mean, the math always favors you when you get help. but There's a part of me that's always resistant to it. And I think that's a lot of people have that. I think that uh, the other, there's a secret too, to if you're doing these kind of uh, train your team member to do a task using a a screen video of some sort. And there's a couple of rules I've I've learned over the years that make a difference in making them more effective. Number one is um, it has to be short. If it's not five or six minutes, then you need to break the task up into a series of steps that are no more than five or six minutes each. because if, if you have a 20 minute long video and somebody has forgotten the step in the middle, they will not watch a 20 minute video to find the 15 seconds of information they're looking for in the middle. They'll just come interrupt you. So if the goal of doing the video is to make sure that you've delegated the ability to complete this task to somebody else, you need to make it 
usable and attractive to them. And that means small chunks. So for me, rule one is they need to be short. Rule two is it must, a video must only ever cover one topic at a time. So I, I, I probably, if I, if I thought about this in advance, if I realized that we would have got into this, this subject, I, I would have had a better example for you than this. I'm going to use a lawyer example. So I, I need to explain to, to the non-lawyers in the world that there are any number of reasons that a lawyer might need to obtain an EIN, which is basically a social security for something in the world, uh, a social security number for something in the world other than a person. Could be a trust, could be an estate, could be an LLC or a corporation, or, or there's any number of other reasons that the, a, a, someone else might need a tax ID number other than their own personal social security number. And there's a website you can go to to obtain those. And for the longest time, I was the only person at my office that would get those because I was the only one that knew how to use the website because it would inevitably go off into a decision tree of if you answer this, well, now you have to answer these other questions. And it was, you know, I was permanently locked in this mode of I'm the only one that knows all the answers. So I have to do that. I realized when I went to go make videos of this, that it wasn't going to be very successful for me to say, well, we're here to do a record a video on how to get a tax ID number for a new LLC. If when I started that video, I'd say, well, now we need to choose you know, the LLC thing here. Now, if you choose the corporation, you need to be prepared to answer all of these questions. And if you're in the trust, you're going to need to be. Once you start talking about all the things that don't apply, they will, they will stop watching the video. Yeah. So I figured out that they had to, to be successful. These, these task training videos had to be one topic at a time. So we now have a video on how to get one for an LLC and a separate one on how to get one for a trust and a separate one on how to get one for a corporation and so forth, because that gets them back into that three to six minute long range. It's focused on the one task that they want to complete that they can then follow along with. These are not, you should never think of these videos as something that's trying to train somebody about all the knowledge associated with this. It's not about content. It's about how to complete a specific task. And once you get clear on what the task is, it's really easy to make the video short. So rule one, make them short. Rule two, one topic only. And when's the last time you pulled an EIN for a new entity? I can't even tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll call that a win. Well, gang, uh, I'm so happy that Mark came on today. I feel like we had a lot of, of interesting discussions today. If you'd like to learn more about Mark's, what Mark's doing, Mark, where should people go? If you, if you want to know about the, the coaching and the lawyer coaching stuff, I do that with a company called Atticus that's been doing that work for 34 years, which in the scheme of things is a great name for a lawyer coaching company, right? Yeah. Um, and they are at atticusadvantage.com. If you're in the Chicago metropolitan area and you need help, getting an estate plan done or buying or selling a home. Those are the things that we help people do. And we're at markmetzger.net. All right. We'll put that in the show notes so you can check it out. I've also got a couple of links there to my article on false urgency and some of the other tools we talked about. Um, We are the focus podcast. Mike couldn't be here today, but he'll be back next time. Uh, He's off having a little R and R and I told him to take the week off and enjoy with his family. Focus on them this week. I want to thank our sponsors, Squarespace, clean my Mac and NetSuite. We are the Focus Podcast. You can find us at relay.fm slash focused. You can find the forums over at talk.macpowerusers.com. And we'll see you next time.